Good to see some new faces uh, here. Well, they're not new faces, but you know, they're new to the meeting. <laughs> so thank you for those of you who have come along this morning. Uh, last evening we were thinking about the foundation of the church, and we were looking at Acts chapter 2. We were thinking of the sermon that Peter preached on the day of Pentecost, and we saw there how he painted a picture of Christ. He laid down five truths that determined the reality, the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we learned that it is on that foundation, the foundation of faith in Jesus Christ, that the church is built. On that day of Pentecost, the Holy Spirit was poured out 3,000 souls were converted to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. This morning what we want to do is to have a look at how we build on that foundation. It's one thing to come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, but is that all there is? Of course it's not. Well, what else is there? How do we build on that foundation? So we want to read from Acts chapter 2. We're going to read from verse 37 through to the end. But we'll be looking primarily at the verses 42 to the end. But just to help us in our understanding. Acts 2 and verse 37. Now when they heard this, that is they heard the sermon that Peter had preached. They were cut to the heart. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, for the promises for you and for your children and for all who are afar off. Every one whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized, and they were added that day about 3,000 souls. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, Attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. Again, may God bless the reading of his holy word. So the church has begun this fledgling church. 
But what is church? What does church do? It's right at the very beginning. Remember, of course, that a church is not a building. It is the body of believers. And in this fledgling church, there was already many people gathering, but there was no agreed format for worship. There were no church creeds. There was no testimony uh, to work to. We are simply told that in those first days, they met together, and they did so with eagerness and honest commitment. If churches would even just sometimes have that. We are also told that they were led in all their activities by the Holy Spirit. And this enabled them to establish worship practices and lay on that foundation of Jesus Christ. The phenomenal success of the gospel in those early days gives testimony to something else. It gives testimony as to how close they really were to God and how much they were empowered by the Holy Spirit as they began uh, to lay the truth of the gospel in uh, the testimony of the church. When the Reformation took place in the late 1500s and early 1600s, those early reformers saw that the church had drifted away from these early foundations that were laid, and they sought to take the church right back to that beginning, to its origin, and help to reestablish the practices of the early believers. So they wanted to recreate as close as possible the New Testament church and You know, people look at us weird covenanters and they think about us and we don't do this, we don't do that, we don't have organs, we don't sing man-made songs and so on. But that was the practice of all the Reformed churches. They have deviated, they're going back, they're making the mistakes that were made by our forefathers and they're drifting away from the foundation, from the centrality of Christ in the worship of the church. So today what we want to do, we want to try and understand the things that this early church practiced and see if we are doing these same things. We have, we have the same foundation. We have the same mission. We are meant to be taking the gospel into the world. They were tremendously successful in doing that. Can we say the same And if we're not, why are we not? So first of all, what I want you to see here is the desire that these people had to learn. They had a desire, a real hunger, a real passion to learn more and more about Jesus Christ and about what it meant to be a believer. Look at verse 42. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. These newly saved believers 
were filled with a hunger to grow. They devoted themselves to learning, to listening uh, to the apostles' teaching and sought to grow in their understanding of what it meant to be a follower of Jesus Christ. Now I want you to think for a moment about how difficult that was for them. These people were predominantly Jewish. They had grown up in the Jewish tradition. And now they're being asked to wipe the board clean and to reestablish themselves in another type of worship. The things that they had grown up doing, the practices that they had been immersed in, the sacrifices, the offerings, all of those things were no longer to happen. They had to embrace a whole new way of doing worship. That's perhaps something we can't really equate to. But that was what they had to do. And, and they wanted to do it. And, and they had this hunger within them uh, to do it right. So they devoted themselves to learning about it. Now you cannot grow as a Christian without having a hunger to grow. And what does that mean, having a hunger to grow? It means that you want to more fully understand the Word of God. You need a desire within you to understand the Scriptures. I know many people who are faithful attenders at church and claim to be Christians, and I have no doubt they probably are, but they have something missing. They have no desire to grow. They have no desire to become better than they are in their understanding of the Bible and so on. They are content just to come to church an hour a week and they listen to the message and they go home and what are, what's happening to them? What's really happening to them is that spiritually they are drying up. Spiritually, instead of progressing, becoming closer to Christ, more full of love for him, commitment to him, they're just drying up. They're like a plant. You know, my wife was a great gardener and she, she loved house plants and I'm sorry to say very few of them have survived because <laughs> I keep forgetting to water them. I have one daughter who the first thing she does every time she comes to the house is water the plants. <laughs> well, those plants need water to survive. As Christians, we need the Bible. We need the Word of God. We need to immerse ourselves in it as these early believers did. Without it, we will dry up and die. It is the responsibility of those who are preachers and teachers in the church 
to nurture this hunger in the people and to satisfy that hunger. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, I'm sure most of you, or at least I hope so, most of you are planning to go down there to the restaurant this evening. I've never been there. I'm going with expectation. I hope they have a good chef. If they don't, I'll never be back. The same thing, folks, applies to the church. It is the responsibility of the minister of the word to prepare a meal that satisfies. Joel's looking at me. <laughs> yes, it is. You know, we need to nurture this hunger, this desire that people have within them. We need to uh, encourage them to, to feed it and to want to have it fed. And so for us, that means ours in the study. A sermon shouldn't be something that's cobbled together on a Saturday evening. A sermon should be something that is thought about. A sermon is something that needs to be researched and well prepared and then lovingly presented. And in that way, we satisfy our duty to encourage the people to learn. But the people themselves have responsibility also. You yourselves must seek to be good learners. You must realize that the Holy Spirit is the one who ultimately gives us the understanding of the word. There are people and they go to certain places just because of the preacher. That shouldn't be either. They should be going there depending upon the Holy Spirit. That preacher won't always be there. Will they stay in that church if there's another preacher comes? Of course they should. But the people themselves have this responsibility to prepare themselves to learn. What do you do before you come to church? Rush in from the farm and get a quick scrub up and pull on the clothes and run off to church? Well, if you do that, you're not ready. In all probability... In the middle of the sermon, you'll be fighting the fatigue. You'll be trying to keep your eyes open. You need to come prepared. Ready and willing to listen and learn. So how do you prepare? Well, a lot of your preparation takes place throughout the week. How much time do you spend reading God's word? How much time do you spend trying to understand God's word? I like the input from my people when it comes to the subjects that I will try to teach. I say try to teach. <laughs> uh, 
so I, I'll ask, you know, coming to, towards the end of a series, has, if somebody has some book of the Bible that they want me to do, of course, they always come up with Revelation and Daniel and stuff like that, of course, <laughs> uh, which is not always necessarily the best food that you can give your people, but we try. Uh, but you, you know... How will you know what you want to learn if you haven't read the Bible, if you haven't looked into things and, and come up against maybe something that, that baffles you and, and you want a, a deeper understanding of it? Feed that back to your teacher and encourage them uh, to help you with that. So there needs to be this, this desire to grow, a desire that is... Uh, shown in your own daily commitment to the reading and the study of God's word uh, and then feeding that on along coming to the means of grace that God provided where you can have your questions answered where you can have that promotion of a, of a deeper understanding of where you should really be with regards to Christ. I want you to note something about these new believers here. It says they were continually devoting themselves uh, to the apostles' doctrine. They took every possible opportunity they could to learn. John MacArthur writes, A believer should count it a wasted day when he does not learn something new from or is not more deeply enriched by the truth of God's word. Scripture is food for the believer's growth and power, and there is no other. If I don't water my plant, it will die. If you don't feed your soul, it withers up. It loses its power and enthusiasm. Discipline yourself to learn from the word of God continually. The Christian life, when lived rightly, is a disciplined life. Is it any wonder then that these early Christians were called disciples? They constantly desired to learn more about the Lord whom they had come to trust. But that wasn't all they did. It wasn't all just about Bible studies and sermons and so on. There was also the building of relationships. Relationships come in three different forms. There's, first of all, our relationship to the Lord Jesus then there is our relationship to our fellow believers and then our relationships to the world. The word that's used here to describe relationship is fellowship. And it comes from a Greek word that means to have in common. To have in common. John Stott says that fellowship expresses what we share together and what we share out together, what we give as well as what we receive. Let's think 
of sharing together. There are things that we have in common as believers. Every one of us is a uniquely different individual. We have different personalities. We have different temperaments. We have different likes and dislikes. But we also have some essential things in common. And that is those common things that bind us together. Those together things are highlighted in the so-called one another passages of Scripture. We are to love one another. We are to forgive one another. We are to be kind to one another. We are to accept one another, encourage one another, admonish one another, do good to one another, stimulate one another to love and good deeds. We are to bear one another's burdens. This tells us two things in particular. Everyone in the body needs me. Each of us today can say that. I am needed by this body. Everybody in this body is needed. There's something I can do for this body. And the second thing is, I need the body. I need everyone in the body and what they can do for me. So I am needed and I need you all. We need one another. And fellowship is simply the meeting of one another's needs in the body. You know, we, we get into this habit of thinking of fellowship as times like this, when you maybe have a church weekend and you come together and you share special time together. It's fellowship. Well, yeah, it is to a degree. But fellowship's far bigger than that. It is our partnering together to help each other live the Christian life. It is the relationship of rejoicing with one another when there are things to rejoice about. Or weeping with one another when there are things to weep about. It is lifting one another up when one falls down. Coming to each other's aid. Helping and giving and sharing with one another in the abundance of what the Lord has given us. We are there to support each other. Of course, there is another dimension to fellowship, and it's found throughout the New Testament. And is apparent in this text. And it's this whole matter of giving. In verse 44, the word there is common. 
these believers considered that what is mine is yours. They sold their possessions and they shared the proceeds. What do you think of that? Is that a good fellowship idea? Hmm. <laughs> Perhaps not. But you see, giving is a vital part of what we are to be doing in the body of Christ. The early Christians showed that they were not stingy money grabbers. They were liberal in their giving. They were following the example of Jesus. Let's put it like this. Until you have learned the grace of giving, you have not really learned fellowship in its truest form. Giving teaches us to be God-dependent. If you give someone that reserve that you had kept for a rainy day, what's going to happen on the rainy day? Well, you trust God that he will supply on the rainy day. Of course, it might never happen. Sun might shine forever. We are reflecting upon God. We are Worshipping him when we fellowship like this. We focus our attention upon him specifically. Reflecting upon his character and his attributes that we're always generous, are always giving. We remember his promises. We remember his saving activity. John Murray says it like this. When we come together, it is to worship God. Everything else really rests upon that. Is that what we do when we come together, when we share together, when we give together? Because really, this is the third point that we need to consider here. As a body, we need to worship together. When we come together to worship God, everything else rests upon our relationship with him. Whatever we do in worship, it is not directed to the worship of God, then it's not worship. There are many people who hearken after the sorts of decorated worship that they had grown up knowing. Uh, I, I can identify with young women who marry into the Covenanton Church and who have not had that history of our exclusive psalmody, and it can be quite exclusive in some places. I'll share this with you. You know, I have often said to young women coming in, look, don't judge us on first appearance. Give it time. And I tell you, if, 
you open your heart to this, you'll come to me after a time and you'll say to me, I wouldn't worship now any other way. Now I said this one night in a Bible study in Belen, and there were a woman there nearly went down my throat. <laughs> I couldn't see that. That could never happen. No, 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 no. Three weeks later, that woman came to me and said, you know something? You're right. She had gone to a mission in a local Presbyterian church, and the whole focus at that mission was on supposed messages and worship. You know, the sort of thing. And she came to me and she said, it was all rubbish. I see now why we have exclusive psalmody and why we worship the way we do. And I know I'm transgressing off the, the sketch a little bit here, but this whole thing of, of worship is so important. It is so important, folks. Now, why, why do we worship the way we do? Because we are following the pattern of this church, the New Testament church. This is how they worshipped. They modeled their worship on the synagogue. In the Old Testament, there is the synagogue, there's a temple. In the temple, there was music. Why was there music? The music was there to play over the offering up of the sacrifice, to drown out what was going on there. It was to draw their attention away from what the priest was doing to that animal, to really to the God whom they had come to please. In the synagogue, there was none of that. There was pure worship. They sang psalms unaccompanied in the worship there. Someone would read the scriptures and explain the scriptures and lead in prayer. And that's what we do in our worship today. Because that's what the early church did. And we do it because we want to be as close to God as we can be in our worship. This centrality of worship in the early church is seen by the practice of breaking bread and prayer. Now you might think it a bit strange when you read the ESV and it says the prayers. But it's actually exactly what the Greek says. Prayers, plural. It's hard to say at this time in the morning. <laughs> prayers, plural. You know, prayer is part of our worship. Sometimes I think that we don't pray enough in our worship. Prayer should never be lessened in any way to make room for something else. It is an important and essential part of our worship. This early church also made a big thing out of the Lord's Supper. Now, some people say that the breaking of bread was simply the coming together for a fellowship meal. But that is not true. That is not what this is about. 
This is a distinct act of worship that was set apart by the early church to remember, as our Lord had commanded, that we remember his death until he comes. And for the early church, the Lord's Supper represented the most hallowed time of church gathering. It's an act of worship and reflection which ought to be the best attended service in our churches. I don't know what happens here, but I know in my own congregations there are a couple of families who never come to communion. Maybe they're reacting to the fencing of the table where the warning is given about coming unworthily. But there is no excuse. They can make themselves worthy. They can come to the Lord Jesus and keep, seek forgiveness. If they know they're unworthy, they can do something about it. The first part of becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ is the recognition that you need him to save you. And if these people can't turn to the Lord and have their sins forgiven, leaving them worthy to come, then what are they doing in a church? The Lord's Supper represents this hallowed gathering of believers. One of the things that I was determined to do when I became a minister was to make the Lord's Supper something that people would remember, that they would think about. I'm not sure that I have always been successful in doing that, but I have certainly tried. When was the last time you put that cup to your lips and shed a tear for the blood of your Lord? out of joy, out of thankfulness for what he has done for you. Because that's what it is to fellowship together at the table of Christ. A time of deep reflection. To remember that sacrifice that he made. To consider the greatness and the majesty of our Redeemer. This God who has called us out of sin into his grace through Christ. Yes, it's a time to consider how unworthy you are, but to remember that it is in Christ you are made worthy and to worship him. What a wonderful opportunity we have. To come back to the prayers, the word prayer here is plural. When you pray, how do you pray? Do you begin with praise and adoration and thanksgiving? 
Why bother with that? You say, I have come to prayer to ask for help or for help for somebody else. Well, what you need to do first of all is to get yourself into the proper mindset. And the only way to do that is to reflect on the one whom you have come to, to acknowledge his greatness, to acknowledge his holiness, to acknowledge his mercy and his grace and his love toward you. And having done that, having obeyed yourself at his feet, then you are ready to open your heart to him and to ask for the things that you want to ask for. Prayer should lead us to focus our attention upon the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. But of course, yes, it does involve asking. Whether you're interceding on behalf of another or petitioning for your own needs. And this early church cherished their times of prayer. It seems that the modern church doesn't really pray as enthusiastically. My experience, uh, we have a practice of our Bible study happens on a Wednesday night, but once a month, the first Wednesday of the month, we meet as individual congregations and we devote our time to prayer. Those prayer meetings are never as well attended as the Bible study. Why? Why? There is not an appetite Well, there is an appetite for prayer, but it's not as good as it should be. Why is there so little revival in our land? Why is there so little spiritual power in our churches? Because we are often trusting too much in the arm of flesh rather than the Spirit of God. Prayer meetings are often seen as unessential. But if we have any hope of being in any way as effective as the New Testament church, we have to intensify our attention to prayer. We really have to do it. There's another thing about this church. They were really missionary-minded. Missionary-minded. The whole subject of witnessing or evangelism shouts at us throughout the book of Acts. But it wasn't simply the activity of the apostles or a select few who were witnessing the gospel. Witnessing was a constant Activity of every believer. Quite often it landed them in trouble, put in prison, flogged, 
evil things spoken about them. But there were those glorious times when the gospel presented to sinners broke forth in saving power upon their lives. And I think the pattern for evangelism as pointed out here in our text is vital for us to see. Too much of what's passed off for evangelism in our day is nothing more than marketing. We're not selling something. We're declaring the good news of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ on behalf of sinners. Our evangelism needs to be God-centered. And here, what is it we learn about the effectiveness of the evangelism in this New Testament era? We learn that the Lord was adding to their number day by day. Every single day, people were being added. Much that passes for evangelism in our day is man-centered. One man trying to get another man to make a decision for the gospel. And I'm sure you've encountered that. I certainly have encountered it when I was in the workplace. Very often that approach puts people off rather than lead them to Christ. Luke states here that it was the Lord who was doing the adding day by day. It was he who was doing the saving work. Obviously he used uh, the believers and their witness. But he is the only one who has the right and authority to add anyone to the church. He alone can save. We are mere messengers. God-centered evangelism begins with God, not with the sinner. We point the sinner to God. We speak our belief that he is the creator and that every man is under his rule. That every man is to obey the laws that he has given. And when we don't do that, we are sinners, and therefore he will judge us. And we are all sinners, so we are all to be judged. But then we explain the gospel, that God sent his Son to redeem sinners. That those who come to him acknowledging their sin and embrace Christ and put their faith in him by the grace of God, are saved from judgment. And then it's up to God. It's up to the power of the Holy Spirit. We teach the message and we leave the sinner to the mercy and grace of God. We don't have to cajole them. Oh, you would like to do it. I'd like to take some people and get them by the collar of the coat and give them a good shake and uh, get them to try and understand. But I can't. I had a man who, he hadn't been at church for 15 years. And his mother died. And his mother was a lovely, godly person. And it was... 
the second funeral I had in Fairview. And he came along to the funeral along with the rest of the family and I never really was talking to him at the funeral. But one of the elders spoke to him and said to him, would you not think about coming back to church? And he said, maybe I will. And a couple of weeks later he did. And I could see this lovely family sitting there and they had no interest. They had, he, was, he was coming because he had said he would come. But I preached the word. And little by little by little, his interest began to peak until it reached a point where he was riveted to every word I spoke. I couldn't keep my eyes off him. It was incredible to watch. And every time he was going out through the church door and I was shaking hands, he would hold on to my hand and I, this guy has something that he needs to get off his chest. And I would like to have just pulled him and said, what is it you want to tell me? But I knew I couldn't. It's a God that's at work here. He, in his time, he will save. And eventually he did. That fella came to me and he poured his heart out. And I could tell you far more, but we don't have time. It's the Lord who saves. It's not us. He saves. And we should never, ever forget that. But we have a duty, folks, and our duty is to tell people about him. And this is what these believers in the New Testament were doing they witnessed to those whom they came across, the members of their families. And that's maybe sometimes the hardest of all, isn't it? To the people they worked alongside, they spoke about their love for Christ. They were, it flowed out of them. They, they loved Christ. And sinners were saved day by day. Now this church was far from perfect and if you go on read through Acts and then particularly Paul's letters to the churches you'll begin to see the pattern how trouble would arise and so on. But they were a blessed church. They followed a pattern that we would do well to follow. Are we going to try and do our part to emulate this pattern in our churches? Giving attention to learning the word of God. Giving attention to the relationships that we share together. Giving attention to worship. To come to worship with a, a new vigor, a new zeal. Making prayer a priority in our personal lives and in our corporate life. And above all, having a burden for souls. Being prepared to evangelize in our daily living. I've often told that to my people. I don't intend going out knocking around all the doors in the community. 
That's their job. It's up to them to speak to their neighbors, to their loved ones, and to their colleagues. But I make them a promise. If you get them to come, I'll try and challenge them through the word of God. Let's consider these things and let's see how we can, by God's grace, do better. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the challenges that you bring before us today. You've shown us what it means to be a church member. That, Lord, it's not just simply a paper exercise, a filling in of days of attendance and so on. But, Lord, it's, it's being active, having a desire to, to learn and grow in our faith, a desire to encourage others to come to church, a desire to, to worship you well when we're given the opportunities to live Christ, to know him, to enjoy him, to serve him. Forgive us, Lord, for the ways that we have failed and, and fill us with zeal for our Savior from this day forth. In his name we pray, amen.